0: Welcome to WADA ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Good afternoon, and welcome to WADA ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to the 21st episode of ADA Live. My name is Rebecca Williams, and I am the Technical Assistance Specialist for the Southeast ADA Center. Our guest today is my colleague, Nancy Horton, the Technical Assistance Specialist for the mid Atlantic ADA Center. Today's topic is the top five ADA employment accommodation requests, notes from an ADA specialist. ADA listening audience, you can submit your ADA employment questions at any time on adalive.org. Nancy, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, some listeners may just be learning about the ADA, how about if we start with the definition of a qualified employee with a disability and then discuss one
1: reasonable de reasonable accommodation process? Well, a qualified individual with a disability is is one who, and this is a quote satisfies the requisite skill, experience, education, and other job related requirements unquote of the job he has or is applying for, and who, with or without reasonable accommodation, can perform the essential functions of that job. So individuals with disabilities must first of all meet the basic legitimate job requirements, just like individuals without disabilities. If a job requires a certain license, for example, or certain experience, Generally, a person with a disability is going to have to have that just like anyone else. But employers that are covered by the ADA uh, must provide reasonable accommodations to enable workers with disabilities to do three basic sorts of things. Apply for a job and engage in that application process perform the essential functions of a job once hired, and enjoy the same benefits and privileges of employment that a similar employee without a disability is entitled to. So reasonable accommodations can encompass a wide variety of things, and what what a reasonable accommodation is is going to vary depending on a number of factors. The nature of a person's disability, their needs, the job, the workplace, the operational needs of the employer, the resources available to the employer, and a number of other factors. Accommodations could include things like providing equipment, uh, assistive technologies, making uh, physical or structural modifications to facilities, um, using accessible communication methods or techniques for people with disabilities like blindness or deafness, for example, making adjustments in schedules, or granting leave, granting time off for workers who may need some time off because of their disabilities. Wow, that's a great basis with which to begin the show.
0: Now, previously, Nancy, you indicated to us that one of the top five inquiries you get is about leave as an accommodation. I'd like to ask you some questions about leave. First of all, can an employer require an employee first use Family Medical Leave Act for leave time before granting
1: time off as an accommodation under the ADA? Generally, yes. Um, I think there are a few things that are really important to, to know or to remember about the FMLA. Um, when we start talking about leave, it often comes up. The FMLA is a very different law from the ADA. Um, for one thing, not all employers that are covered by the ADA are covered by the FMLA. In the private sector, employers um, are covered by the ADA if they have 15—that's one five—employees or more. But only private employers with 50—that's five zero—employees are covered by the FMLA in the private sector. So, um, you know, there are a lot of em- employers out there that are covered by the ADA, but they're not covered by the FMLA. Um, Additionally, an employee must have worked a minimum amount of time for the employer before they become eligible um, to even possibly use FMLA. So there are a great many workers across the country who are just not entitled to leave under the FMLA at all. And they may be under the aDA, but where the fmLA is in play it 's pretty common for employers to require employees to to use it up it 's an entitlement it 's a relatively straightforward how much leave you get if you 're eligible, what eligibility looks like, what reasons people can you know use to take leave. and and all of that, Um, and very often that leave will be considered to run concurrently with other types of leave that a worker might use. But bottom line is if employers are covered by both the ADA and the FMLA, they must comply with both. Well, thanks for that thorough answer, Nancy. It sounds like they
0: could get a little tricky between ADA leave and FMLA leave. So probably the best thing it sounds like is for an employee to talk with their HR and find out which one of these laws applies to them and then go from there. Thanks a lot. Um, now I want to ask you, can an employer establish specific
1: attendance and leave policies? Generally, yes. They can, Um, assuming that the policies themselves are not discriminatory or they're not applied in some kind of a discriminatory way. um, Employers can have attendance and leave policies, but they still must consider requests for adjustments to those policies on an individual basis for workers with disabilities. Great.
0: Okay, now the next question regarding leave is, is there a time limit as to how much time an employer must grant to an employee with
1: a disability as an accommodation? Well, yes, but it will vary depending on a number of factors. Although leave as an accommodation under the ADA never has to be granted for forever, or even for an indefinite period of time, there has to be some reasonable expectation that the worker is returning at some point um, that can at least be estimated. You know, workers and doctors and so forth are not gonna always know exactly the day or the hour that a worker is going to be ready to return to work. But there does have to be Some expectation. That's the purpose, really, of leave as a reasonable accommodation is to enable an individual to do things like obtain treatments or um, surgeries or to recuperate or attend some disability related training or do something that is going to get them back to work. It's not just to give time off. It's to enable them to return to work. But reasonable accommodation of any kind, including leave, is limited by what's known as undue hardship, which means significant difficulty or expense. And this concept, like many in the ADA, is intended to be applied in an individualized way in a specific situation and based on real life, real world factors, not on bias and stereotypes and so forth. So, what will impose an undue hardship on an employer in one situation may not in another. Um, this can vary from employer to employer or even within the same workplace from one situation to another. Some absences can be accommodated relatively easily, even for uh, extended periods of time, while others can place a real strain on the workplace and involve things like difficulty and expense, um, which leads to hardship on an employer in some cases. Now, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, which regulates the employment provisions of the ADA, believes that an employer should not have an absolute no-fault, what's often called a no-fault leave policy. For example, a maximum of six months of leave, and that's all an employer will give anybody under any circumstances for any reason, and the employee who needs six months and one day of leave is terminated. The EEOC says that employer should look at all the relevant factors, can they really cover for that employee and hold his job for that one more day and make these sorts of decisions on a case-by-case basis? I should note, though, that not all courts who have decided ADA cases have necessarily agreed with EEOC's positions. Great information for our listeners, Nancy. Thanks. Thanks. One
0: last question in regards to leave as an accommodation. What
1: happens if an employee can't return to work at the end of the agreed upon leave? Well, that's going to really depend on what's really going on at that point, whether the employee simply needs more leave, and if so, how much, and whether that is reasonable. Although Repeated requests for leave extensions can at some point um, basically become requests for indefinite leave, generally just not considered reasonable because of this idea that an employer is is entitled to some expectation of return. Um, I do like to kind of remind and encourage employers and employees to think about accommodations other than full-time leave um, that might enable the worker to return, at least on some basis. Now, this is really always an option. Even when an employee starts out by just asking for a block of leave time, you know, I need six weeks, I need two months, I need two weeks Of of time off. An employer can certainly consider and possibly utilize other options or combinations of options where possible to enable a worker to either to remain on the job or remain in the workplace or to continue to work at least to some extent. Options might include things like working part-time, flexible scheduling, or any other type of accommodation. So sometimes folks tend to get their mind set on kind of an all-or-nothing you know, block of leave and, and forget to kind of think whether there may be other options that might balance, um, balance the leave time. But if an employee does reach a point, where additional leave is is really what they need, and it's an undue hardship for the employer. It's reached a point where it really is an undue hardship for that employer to hold that job any longer. Or there's a point where it becomes clear that additional leave is not going to enable the employee to return to the job, even with any kind of accommodation, you know, at any point, the the employees just reached a point where they are no longer qualified for their job, basically, then what the employer needs to do is consider reassignment to a vacant position if there is one um, that the employee is qualified for.
0: ADA Live listening audience,
1: if you have a question about employment and reasonable
0: accommodations for employees... You can submit it at any time at our online forum at adalive.org. And now, a word from our sponsors. The Mid-Atlantic ADA Center, administered by Transcend Incorporated, serves the states of Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia, as well as the District of Columbia. Our staff and extensive network of affiliates provide information, materials, and a variety of training programs. Ranging from webinars to workshops. Additionally, our information specialists are available to respond to specific questions from businesses, architects, employers, and other individuals interested in the Americans with Disabilities Act. Call 1 800 949 4232 with your questions. Nancy, before our break, you mentioned that reassignment where they can position can be an accommodation. That's a great segue into my next question about reassignment.
1: Who decides what position an employee will be reassigned to? Well, like all accommodations, the employer makes the initial decision about what accommodation to provide. Um, Reassignment is no different. An employee, of course, always has the option of challenging an employer's decision if the employee believes that that decision has been discriminatory in some way, the employee can file a complaint and so forth. But I like to, to make note that reassignment, like all accommodations, has to be effective. So an employee should be reassigned to a vacant job that is the as most comparable his current job. Okay, makes sense. Now, does the employee have to be moved to a position with the same pay rate? If possible, a reassignment should be to a position that is as equivalent as possible in all ways, pay, status, benefits, location, etc. Um, however, an employer never has to create a job as a reasonable accommodation. A job has to actually exist, and it has to be vacant at the time or within some short foreseeable period of time. For instance, maybe the employer knows that someone is retiring next week, and that job would be the perfect uh, job for this reassignment situation. But if the only job that's vacant and for which the individual is qualified is a lower-paying job, then the employer may reassign the individual to that job. That's the only job available. A person gets paid for the job they're in, not the job they used to be in. And that may come as a surprise
0: to some people who have asked for reassignment, so I'm glad you uh, clarified that for folks. The last question I have regarding reassignment deals with seniority systems. Many employers have seniority systems. So does this affect reassignment?
1: Yes, yes it does. Um, If there is a seniority system in place and it is followed consistently without exception, then it does not have to be set aside in order to provide a reassignment or an accommodation to a worker with a disability. The worker with the disability can't leapfrog over another worker who has seniority. Seniority does trump where it is in place legitimately.
0: Another good point to make our listeners aware of. Thanks a lot, Nancy. You have provided us with quite a bit of valuable information, Nancy. Before we continue, here's a word from our sponsors. The Southeast ADA Center is your leader in providing information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability access tailored to the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, state, and regional levels. The Southeast ADA Center, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is a member of the ADA National Network and serves eight states in the Southeast region. For answers to your ADA questions, contact the ADA National Network at 1-800-949-4232. Welcome back, listening audience. We are speaking today with Nancy Horton, Technical Assistance Specialist with the Mid-Atlantic ADA Center, on the Top 5 Employee Reasonable Accommodations Requests. Next to our list is Accessible or Reserved Parking. Nancy, can an employee use the accessible parking that is meant for business customers as an accommodation?
1: Well, Let me start by saying that employers' obligations to provide reasonable accommodations to workers with disabilities is a separate and different issue from any obligations that they may have to ensure access to any parking facilities they provide for general use or the use of customers. So I think maybe a simple example will help kind of illustrate this this concept. Let's say an employer, which is a private business that's also covered by Title III of the ADA, which governs the, the business-customer relationship. Let's say this is a retail store. They build a brand-new store with one big, large parking lot, it's intended to be used by both customers and employees. That parking lot, because of Title III, will have a certain specific number of accessible parking spaces based on the total number of spaces in the entire lot, and those accessible spaces will have very specific dimensions and features. Now, based on statistics and research and building codes and so forth, we can expect that those parking spaces will generally meet the needs of the population. But sometimes the needs of an individual employee are not met, and the employer, under Title I of the ADA, owes an employee with a disability an individualized reasonable accommodation. So sometimes an employer may have to take additional measures to provide reasonable accommodation. Now, they still want to meet the needs of their customers, of course, so to make sure that they accommodate their workers, they might do things like designate additional accessible spaces. They might allow an individual employee to park in a different location that's not available to the general public, maybe around back or something, so that employee can can get into the workplace. They might reserve a space for an individual employee that isn't really a true, what we would call, an accessible space, but it's close to the entrance, and that's what meets the individual employee's needs. There are lots of people with disabilities who use accessible parking, they have accessible parking permits, because they need to be as close as possible to entrances. They might be ambulatory people, they don't use mobility devices like wheelchairs or walkers, but they might have something like a heart condition or a lung condition or some other disability that limits their stamina, for example. Maybe walking long distances, Is problematic. But they might not necessarily need the extra width that an access aisle creates at an accessible parking space. They may be able to step up over a curb or park on a surface that has a slope that wouldn't be allowed in a true accessible parking space. But the point is that reasonable accommodation is an individualized It's about meeting the needs of a specific worker. And so the limit is undue hardship, not how many accessible spaces the ADA standards or the building code calls for in a parking lot. So, you know, the, the common situation is employees and customers are using the same spaces. It's first come, first serve. But if the needs of employees are not being met, then the employer needs to look at that as a potential reasonable accommodation issue and move that to a new level. So that answer looked at
0: when employees and customers may be using the same parking facility is the situation any different when an employer has one parking
1: facility for employees and another for customers only? Well, it could be, but it might not be. I mean, parking facilities can be restricted, and and it's not uncommon for them to have restrictions of various kinds, you know, customers only, employees only, time limits, cost factors. um, And that's fine. You know, uh, employers and and businesses can place restrictions on parking facilities and have different parking lots for different populations, as long as they provide accessibility for those different groups. So if they've got an employee-only lot, it should have this minimum number of spaces available available, should have an accessible route to get to the building, the entrance, wherever people are going. Um, This is just this basic concept of equal opportunity based on whatever group you belong to. Nevertheless, this obligation to provide an individualized reasonable accommodation for employees is kind of a layer on top of these basic provisions. So there could be a case where parking even in an accessible space in an employee lot doesn't meet an individual's needs, an individual employee's needs, and the employer may have to consider should they designate an additional space in the customer lot, should they look at some of these other options to try to make sure that the individual worker is accommodated.
0: Well, Nancy, what would happen if an employer does not provide parking for employees? Are they still required to provide parking for an employee with a disability as a reasonable accommodation?
1: Well, that is really a very good question. It's an excellent question, one that uh, continues to be debated uh, uh, by employees and employers and, and courts even. Um, many would argue, and the EEOC would point this out as well, that the ADA really only requires an employer to provide equal opportunities in relation to the terms, the benefits, the facilities that it provides, that it generally provides, so that if parking for anyone, they wouldn't have an obligation to provide it for a worker with a disability. But at least one court, a court in New York actually, did rule that an employer had an obligation to provide paid parking in a, you know, a garage in town uh, for an employee with a disability, even though it did not do anything like that for employees. In general, the court reasoned that the, that was the only way that the employee was going to be able to get to work, and so that the employer had to do that. So that is out there, but it's this is not a question that has a real clear-cut answer. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. Now, what if
0: an employer provides employee parking in a facility owned by somebody else, uh, let's say they rent space in a parking garage, who in this instance would be responsible for providing accessible or reserved parking for an employee as an accommodation?
1: Well, an employer is always the entity that's responsible for reasonable accommodation for workers. The owner or operator of the parking garage may have obligations of their own under Title II or Title III of the ADA, for example, in terms of ensuring that the parking garage is accessible, it has accessible parking spaces, and so forth. But it it has no additional obligation to provide a reasonable accommodation to someone else's employee. So depending on what the individual worker needs, the employer may be able to make some sort of arrangement with the garage, pay some additional fee, or make arrangements to make some type of modification, Within the garage, restriping, signage, what have you, to allow the employer to meet its obligation to accommodate the worker. I don't know about you, Nancy, but I receive frequent
0: questions about parking as an accommodation. Your information should help both employees and employers understand this requirement as it pertains to parking facilities. Now I have just one last question about parking as an accommodation. If if an employee requests accessible parking or reserved parking and they already have a state-issued accessible parking permit, can an employer require additional medical documentation to support this request?
1: Well, I guess that would depend on why the employer thinks that it needs some different or additional information. Usually, when a person already has a state-issued accessible parking permit and can prove that it was issued to them, not their dead grandmother or something, and it's current, most employers will accept that as evidence of disability and the need for accessible parking because, after all, the person has established, to the satisfaction of the state, by providing medical documentation from a qualified professional, uh, that they need accessible parking. But I suppose there could be a scenario where an employer has some valid reason to either question why the individual's needs aren't being met under current conditions you know, knowing what they know about their facilities and so forth, or maybe to suspect that the individual doesn't actually need what they're asking for. I mean, when it comes to requests for reasonable accommodations, an employer, you know, generally does have the right to get documentation to show that an individual has a disability as defined by the ADA and that they need what they're asking for, because of that disability, if either or both of those things are not obvious, then an employer can get documentation. Um, no more than that, though, just that basic information. Um, so again, most employers would generally accept the the permit, the placard, um, if parking is really the issue on the table. Um, so I can't imagine why they wouldn't, but maybe there's a maybe there's a scenario out there. Who would have thought
0: accessible parking as an accommodation could get so complicated, but that is a great deal of information, excellent information for our listening audience. Wow. Our time for the show is up and we still have two more topics to discuss about the top five ADA employment accommodation requests. Thank you, Nancy, for sharing such a wealth of information. We will continue this discussion next month, July 1st, At 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We look forward to discussing more with you next month, Nancy. I would like to thank Nancy Horton from the Mid Atlantic ADA Center for joining us today and for agreeing to continue this valuable conversation next month. And thank you also to our ADA Live listening audience. The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and participation in this series of WADA ADA Live broadcasts. Remember, You may submit questions about any of our ADA live topics by going to org. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, please contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Once again, that's 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and confidential. We invite folks to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the ADA. This is a really big year for us. July 26, 2015 is the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we invite everyone to be part of the nationwide ADA 25th celebration. Please go online to wadaanniversary.org and find the ADA pledge. Now, this pledge is not a money pledge. It's only to say that we support the ADA. We're glad it's here. We believe in access for everyone. We also invite you to explore the ADA Anniversary Toolkit. It is packed full of ideas and information. Please learn, connect, and share the ADA anniversary at www.adaanniversary.org. We hope you will join us next month, July 1st, as we continue our conversation with Nancy Horton of the Mid-Atlantic ADA Center on the Top 5 ADA Employee Accommodations Requests. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic, and you can call 1-800-949-4232
1: for answers to your ADA questions.